0: My guest today is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark retired from the senior intelligence service ranks in 2019 after serving for 26 years in the intelligence community in operational field and leadership assignments. Okay, that's just a fancy way of saying he worked for the CIA. <laughs> he is an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection. Mark is one of the IC's most highly decorated field officers and has honed a unique leadership style based on decision-making under pressure, inclusivity, camaraderie, and competition. His book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, was published in June 2021 by HarperCollins. Mark's goal is to pass on his knowledge to the private sector who can benefit from his unique experiences serving his country in the hotspots spots of the world there are so many highlights from this episode you're not gonna wanna miss. My conversation with Mark kicks off with a fascinating story of how he gained his global perspective at a really young age. He then talks to us about the early leadership skills he gained and how he consistently reinvented himself throughout his 26 year career at the CIA.
1: I went to my boss at the time and he was a guy by the name of John Brennan future director of the CIA but he was my boss on the analytics side and I went to him and I said I think I want to become an operations officer and he said sure no problem which is pretty funny because he didn't really try to stop me
0: he also shares one of the best and honestly most extreme stories about learning on the fly I think I have ever heard
1: which way does it fire like I have no idea what I'm doing
0: (laughs) it is truly unbelievable you're not going to want to miss that story Mark also shares with us skills that make a good intelligence officer and how he cultivated talent in non-traditional hires. He also shares his experience of often leading through ambiguity and the importance of continually investing in and training your team. Just like his new book, Clarity in Crisis, this episode is full of unbelievable stories. You won't want to miss a second of this one. Mark Polymeropoulos, thank you so very, very much for joining us on the Bet on Yourself podcast today.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: I'm very excited. You have had such an exceptional career, and we're going to dive into all the details of this very interesting life that you've led. But I wonder if you can walk us all the way back and start us at the beginning. What did a young Mark think he was going to be when he grew up?
1: Oh wow! What a, what a great question. So I, I knew I always wanted to do something different. You know, so I you know I, I was born in Greece. Uh, my dad was Greek. My mom was American, and so even though we moved to the United States right away, my uh, you know we went back every summer. My dad was a professor um, in, in the U.S., so we had two or three months off. So I spent my 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 whole life really growing up on the Greek islands in the island of Mykonos. So I had this really incredible you know view of of the world, and we traveled all the time. Um, but I, I really learned that I wanted to do something different when my dad took a teaching position in Algeria. And so at 10 years old, so he was there for a year at 10 years old, my mom put me on an airplane at JFK Airport in New York by myself, flying through Paris to Algiers, where my dad and I drove 2000 miles to the Sahara Desert in an old Volkswagen minibus, just sleeping in oasis. And so, you know, wow. I, I, I thought I was Lawrence of Arabia. And so <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to do something, you know, you know, global, you know, yeah. a, a, something different um, and and I also had a strong sense of kind of public service. so I, I so I was thinking, you know, maybe maybe the intelligence community, maybe the state department, you know, you know I, I maybe you know, maybe going to the military, um, uh, but something where i would I would see and experience, you know, something outside of, you know, I love growing up in New Jersey, but something outside of New Jersey
0: but that's fascinating. What an incredible like childhood moment. Yeah. I can't imagine getting on that plane at ten right. alone. Um, I come from a military background. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Air Force. Sure. I was born on an Air Force base. So similar, like, global perspective from a really young age, right. uh, service-based, you know, family values of of really giving back to your community and thinking globally outside of your own. So that's really interesting common ground there, although yours is much more extreme than mine was. Um, well, so, I mean, well, but
1: it's similar, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's just wanting more, I think.
0: Yes, wanting more. I love yeah. yes. That probably is the underline between all the crazy decisions I've made across my life right. and career. Yeah. Wanting more. <laughs> I love that. Um so how did your how did it actually progress? What did you end up studying sure. and where did that take you into your first job opportunities?
1: So I went to Cornell University for undergraduate and grad school. Um so I studied, you know, the government or political science and then my master's degree was uh, was on North Africa and the rise of Islamic fundamentalist movement. So I knew at that point I really wanted to do something with public service. And, wow. and, you know, fact of the matter is the CIA had a recruiter on campus, um, you know, I, it's always it's sometimes controversial. So this is back in 1992. So I think there were some protests on campus um, about it. I remember a security guy wow. with an earpiece as I'm walking into my interview. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that I, that, you know, I was pretty had my, my heart, to heart set on. Um, And it turns out that's, you know, until writing this book and talking to you today and, and talking leadership stuff, but CIA was the only job I've ever had. So it's, so I am, I am really qualified to be an intelligence officer, you know, pretty qualified to talk about leadership, but that's about it.
0: I think that's a massive understatement of your expertise here. So what was it about the CIA that attracted you originally? What types of skills were you hoping to learn? Because I imagine, now I'm curious about this, actually. I find it really hard to watch movies about technology because I know what tech is actually like. Do you have a hard time watching movies about spies in the CIA? Yeah, of
1: course. I mean, that's what a a perfect example. I mean, that that, that, and so, yeah, I, I just don't take it seriously. Now, every once in a while, you find something that's Really good, and then you yeah. kind of you know jump on that, and you talk about it with others. Maybe you talk about it, in, you know uh, you know uh, in the media or on Twitter, or on social media. Um, but generally, most of the stuff, you know, look, I wasn't you know Jason Bourne. Um, no. my, my kids think I, I I was, so that's fine. They can kind that's of fine. That in there. That's, yeah. that's good. Um, but but ultimately, no no. In terms of you know the the, I think that I went in first to the CI. I went on the analytics side, so I wanted to be an you know I was hired to be an analyst. Um, and that means analyzing all source information, whether it's report human reports from spies, whether it's signals intelligence from communication mm-hmm. intercepts or just, you know, or for, from open source. But I was hired in to do Middle Eastern analysis. Um, but after two or three years, I quickly learned that I wanted to go over to the operational side, which is the job of spotting, assessing, developing, handling uh, spies. You know, these are these are people from, you know, these are foreigners who work for other governments who, you know uh, you know, or or you know penetrations of terrorist groups who ultimately are, are providing information in the united states and so I, I moved on to that based on kind of things just inside that i wanted to live overseas that i thought i would be better at that um but but ultimately you know the, the cia was just an organization that i that kind of just i just gravitated towards it made a lot of sense and um and again i stayed there for 26 years so clearly you know it was something that i really enjoyed and and i got to be pretty good at you know
0: yeah so i stated it at Google for 12 years, which is really unusual, especially in tech. That makes me like 1 million years old, basically. Um, and I imagine 26 years at a single organization is a very long time. And it seems to me in looking at your career from the outside, that there were some purposeful ways in which you reinvented yourself across this, this long time zone. I wonder if you can walk me through some of the that evolution of what leadership skills you were learning, what projects did you volunteer for, and how did you anticipate where you could be of most value? I think that moved from being an analyst into the operations side is a great example of you knowing where your skill set could particularly be useful. So once you had made that jump, how did you then level up within that and continue to reinve- in, reinvent and invest in yourself going forward?
1: Sure. And, and I think that's something you always have to do. I mean, you know, so so first of all, I did stay at an organization for twenty six years, but it's an organization made up of really different parts you know so the analysts or the operators or the tech folks or the support personnel logistics folks so there's you know so just because it's a big company you know it's called the company that's kind of the nickname for it just because it's a big company there are certain you know you, you kind of find your niche and and I and eventually i did so i started off on the analytics side and interestingly enough and this is, this is a great story this is in 1993 I, I actually helped write one of the first papers on what we call the Afghan Arabs, and these were these were uh, uh, Afghan these I'm sorry these were Arab nationals who went to fight the Afghan with the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets in the 80s and 90s, um, and and so you know this was when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were, had this enormous struggle. The U.S. supported some of these you know Afghan groups, but there were some some Arabs from around you know around the Middle East who came were really radicalized, and one of the individuals we I wrote about in this paper was a guy by the name of Osama bin Laden. So think back to that, wow. back in 1993. Uh, but because this paper then got some some notoriety, I was able to then travel a bit, and so all of a sudden I'm now going on temporary assignments to you know overseas for the CIA. And then uh, uh, in 1995 or so, I spent three months at a at a, a U.S. facility overseas, and that's where I fell in love with the operational world. So I was an okay analyst. But I thought, you know what, As you can see, I'm, I'm a people person, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a storyteller, I love engaging with folks, I think just I was just better suited for it. And I went to my boss at the time, and he was a guy by the name of John Brennan, future director of the CIA, but he was my boss on the analytics side. And I went to him and I said, I think I want to become an operations officer. And he said, sure, no problem, which is pretty funny, because he didn't really try to stop me from leaving. <laughs> so you know, and I was like, well, was I really the lousiest analyst of all time? And I spoke about <laughs> that with him later on. Uh, even when I, when, I, you know, when I saw him, when he was the director of the CIA, we joked about that. But I found my niche on the operational side and making that jump is not easy. I mean, this is going from kind of sitting in an ivory tower back in, you know, Northern Virginia at CIA headquarters to spending my life overseas, where I ended up, you know, doing seven tours uh, in, in the Middle East. I spent almost three years in Iraq and Afghanistan. So my life radically changed, but it was exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew in, internally in myself. Um, that I was well suited for this. and and I think you just have to be able to you know to be brave and take that jump. Um, uh, and then once I was on the operational side, I just volunteered for everything. I think that was one of the questions that you know, so how did mm-hmm. I, you know it, it's it's not even reinventing myself. It's just, you know you know trying to find opportunities. Um now I was you know, I'm a great patriot. so when when you know, there were wars in, frankly, and you know, war is not a good thing, but that's what we do. Uh, uh, support the warfighter in the intelligence community. So when Iraq is kicking off or Afghanistan is kicking off, I was lucky is that I was one, you know, I was always on one of the first teams that went in. Well, is that because I was a great officer? Well, I think I was pretty good. But actually, it's because I was there, I volunteered, you know, I I raised my hand. Um, And so, you know, I think that these are these are really important lessons. Uh, You know, if you see something in front of you, you got to just kind of go for it. Um, Because other people look, there's a long line behind me, um, who also wanted to go, I got to go and I ended up you know, really prospering because of it. Um, And, you know, having this incredible career, but if I hadn't volunteered, if I hadn't had the courage to make those changes, I don't think I'd be here talking to you today.
0: I think you bring up a really good point. And uh, an important element of that is being brave about it. Um, I learned early in my career at Google, that being ready to raise my hand and take on a big challenge didn't necessarily need to equate being ready to be perfect. I wonder if you can... Tell me a story about a time when you volunteered for something, you got it, and then you realized you were in a bit over your head. Is there a time when you really were listening, learning on the fly?
1: I have the best story for you on this, and, and I love telling the story. So this was in Afghanistan. So I'm posted in the Middle East um, in uh, in early 2002 as there, as we're, we're creating teams to go into Afghanistan. These are teams that have been made famous in movies. I wasn't in one of the first. I wasn't one of the first ones in, but these are still some of the early teams in early 02. And so I raised my hand. I'm, I'm I'm at a U.S. facility, you know, a uh, U.S. embassy overseas, but they pulled me out of that to go for, for you know, three or four weeks or so to be on one of these teams in Afghanistan. You get some training, you go. I arrive in this in the southern Afghan city of Kandahar, which is the Wild West. You know, I'm exhausted. I'm jet lagged. The first night I'm there, there's only a couple of us. And they said, hey, we do watches, you know, we do night you know, watches at night. So everyone sleeps for three or four hours, just go up on the roof, you know, obviously you know if there's any kind of you know attack on our on our base you obviously let us know we had some protocols <clears throat> then one of the officers gives me this giant tube and he said this is an AT4 anti-tank weapon and so just and and then he goes downstairs and I'm I'm sitting up there looking at this thing thinking like which way does it fire like i have no <laughs> idea what i'm doing and i was like i was like wait 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 come back and the guy disappeared and i was i sat up there that night like like half laughing like well first of all you know nothing happened thank god but the next day, I was like, hey, you all better give me some training on this thing. Um, now, you know, I, I, in, in an ideal situation, we'd be, we'd be back at a, one of our bases back in the United States, and I would be trained on all these weapon systems. But here I am. It's called an AT-4. It's an anti-tank weapon. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, I might sh- I might pull the trigger and might fire backwards. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but I made it through because I was like, all right, you know, for lack of a better term, like F it. I'm going to yeah. survive this night. And then tomorrow morning, I'm going to grab someone and say, you better train me on this um, or we're all going to die. <laughs> so, I'll never forget sitting up there in the middle of the night, just looking around, looking up at the Afghan sky, thinking, what the heck am I doing here?
0: Wow. OK, so that is the most extreme example I have heard <laughs> <laughs> of really just jumping in before you even knew. But I think it's a really great example, of though. While most people probably won't find themselves in that exact situation, right. it is often um a part of our career development where you sometimes just have to try it because you don't know what you don't know until you've sat on that rooftop and now right. you know the questions you need to ask to be successful next time and so just in that first learning environment being like right i'm going to try this out so i can now <laughs> know what questions to ask to be successful i think is a is a big part of that whether that's a boardroom or a rooftop i think the principle is the
1: same so so here's where i think it really is applicable and so one of the things when i wrote my book on clarity and crisis is Look, I, I have my whole kind of you know uh, community of of intelligence and special operations friends, and they're gonna read the book and, and smile and remember stories, but that's not who the book is written for. It. So one of my one of my you know uh you know colleagues at one point said to me, Hey, when you write this book on leadership, it better appeal to to know your your your, your, your all of our former crazy type A alpha males and females, but also at a librarian. Like a librarian's gotta pick up this book and say, yeah. I got this. So with that in mind, here's here's where this our, our discussion right now is really applicable, and it has to do with um uh you know putting in for for you know for for jobs uh or or mm-hmm. you know or or and, and how i was mentoring younger officers and one of the things that i found that was really interesting and we're going to get off on a tangent here but this is i this love is it really applicable. but so this was you know at cia we have not had a great track record of promoting you know female and minority officers and one of the things that we found as as i was running promotion panels but not really promotion but as i was running um you know job panels for for positions and in positions where younger officers were were for for example going into first line management hmm. we'd have a set of five criteria and so here's what would happen you'd have the male officers who are completely unqualified in all five up there <laughs> saying i can do this yeah. you'd have the female officers who have three of the five saying yeah i'm not good enough i'm not even going to apply for the job yep. and, and and this kind of stuff drove me crazy and so so one of the things i was trying to kind of put in the culture of our of our organization especially as 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 i was very senior before i left is you know first of all you know dare to fail you know you know take that step you don't have to have five of the five now the male officer has zero the five is not going to get the job but what i was worried about always it was that the female officers who had three of the five qualifications wouldn't even apply so how do you change the culture of that to tell everyone take that step have that courage to jump forward um to, to raise your hand and because you know maybe nine times out of ten you're gonna get that job um so i think that's where you know you know that that sitting on that rooftop in kandahar with an 84 you know there is something to be said for that um uh, because because i did have some other qualifications i wasn't massively unqualified to be there i was a good case yeah. officer an operations officer um you know but I, I had four of the five but that one out of the five i didn't have but that's okay because guess what the next day i learned how to do it um and so uh, you know that that would be kind of my lesson for everybody is is you know raise your hand, dare to fail, certainly dare you know you know be brave in volunteering um for tougher assignments. that's how you grow.
0: hundred percent. I think there's so much i mean, <laughs> I never expected to be saying this right now, but i I see so much crossover learning comparing your career in the CIA to mine in tech in especially in sure. early tech when we were inventing things that no one had ever done or created before. When you're really going into that unknown, we don't know what the right skill set is. We don't know how to anticipate what's on the other side of this adventure. And just, you you have no choice but to make it up as you go and do the very best that you can. So Clarity in Crisis, sounds to me, I love the title of your book, it's really intriguing. as, As your operations specialist, I imagine a big part of your responsibilities was identifying those talents and anticipating how people would react in real life field situations. Is that correct?
1: In terms of as in terms of helping grow others. Um, yeah. Or in, yeah.
0: As you were identifying talent, what were the leadership skills um, when they're going to be in these high pressure, high responsibility environments? How did you cultivate that talent and anticipate it? Because I love that you have this diverse angle of like really wanting to bring in non-traditional candidates in, into these oh, sure. different types of roles.
1: So so you know people ask me all the time so you know what is the what is the top characteristic what is the, the you know the top trait of, a, of what makes a really good intelligence officer and i think there's several things and we talked about it even just in the beginning as as you know as as this kind of thirst of knowledge of of just this openness for the world because the fact is you're not going to live in america you live overseas um we're going to ask you to learn the language you know you're you're going to be hanging out with people who are not like you you're going to eat funny food you know mm-hmm. i mean so but that's so so that's kind of a, a basic one but the characteristic that i found to be most helpful to my and this is this is the, the core job of an operations officer is humility. Mm. And and i and i and i talk about that all the time. Um, because i have you know and, and and it's it's based on experience. I've had tremendous success, you know, in, in my career where things i did, operations i ran, you know, landed on the front page of the new york times or the washington post. I can't talk about it. I wasn't named yeah. in it. Um but then I've also had staggering failure, where I've run operations where we've had our assets killed, we've we've had our own officers killed, and this yeah. is my responsibility. So to be humble is really important. You know, you know, you can't believe your own hype um, uh, because, especially in, a, in a, an incredible high pressure, high pressure, high risk, uh, high reward um, job, you know, there's failure around the corner. Even if you had this tremendous success, you know, I could be down in the White House seeing the president. I'd do something the next day that that causes some kind of you know foreign policy debacle. Um, so humility is really important, and that's the trait that I always looked look for. And but but by the way, humility is also something that actually can lead people to be able to take great risks, mm-hmm. because that means they understand that they've had great success, but they've also had failure. And I always talk about how you know adversity is is, is something that is critical for growth. Um, so with, when you ask me that question, humility is, uh, is is the top trait that I always look for.
0: Not what I was expecting. But what is so fascinating is my most frequently asked question is, what are the common denominators between these celebrity billionaire CEOs that I've worked for across my career? And people are always shocked that humility is also my answer, that I don't think that's by accident. That if you well, want to lead teams and yeah. go where no one's ever gone before, you really need to be have an open mind, listen to feedback, anticipate needs, and be insatiably curious and uh, willing to learn really, really fast and pivot. And that's almost always from mistakes.
1: So so one of my principles in the book is adversity is the PED, the performance enhancing drug to success. And, <laughs> and I, always, I, I call it adversity is your super fuel. You know for growth i mean and and i I, the other thing is is part of the books i'm also a huge sports fan so i I use baseball analogies all the time but there's also other sports analogies i mean michael jordan got cut from his high school basketball team i mean i I love saying that all the time so i would imagine your former clients Mm -hmm. all had incredible adversity in their life because that's what maybe that adversity drives them to succeed and succeed in manners in which if they hadn't failed they never would have never would have come back and so you know look and and trust me I, i don't like failing you know, it's not fun and failing in my business. Sometimes the results were, were catastrophic, um, but that's part of life. It's going to happen in every industry. Uh, and so it's if you can learn from that, you know, that is key. And it all goes back to that that common denominator again is, is, is being humble.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine the extreme environments in which you've learned these lessons your career has taken you all over the globe for an incredible cast of characters that I imagine were very diverse, either in their roles or in their relationships to you, having to collaborate with people who aren't friendly. I wonder, is there, are there some stories that really illustrate those lessons of collaboration for a common mission where you really oh, yeah. had to pull the different strengths and different motivations into a single focus? Because I, I think that might be an interesting uh, comparison into my very nerd version of, of no, this No, no, not
1: at all. No, I think <laughs> you make a good intelligence officer. You, can, you might need another career change. <laughs> you can pivot now again. Uh, No, because no, because honestly, because you have that sense of of you know you know desire to learn and 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 an openness to experience new things, and so so one of the things that I loved, and again, all I talk about in my book when I talk leadership, I was a really good leader at the end of my career. You know, when I had a thousand plus people under my my command, at the beginning of my career I was not. Everything I learned was based on kind of you know you know you know failure and mistakes, but then of course just growing from it. But one of the things that that I learned as as I learned as, as I led units. Um, and this happened. I, I think that I had this eureka moment in 2012. I was a base chief in Afghanistan. So, so what we did, you know, in in Afghanistan, CIA put paramilitary bases all along the border with Pakistan as we were collecting intelligence on what we call high value targets. These are Al Qaeda members who were, you know, still trying to do harm to America and Americans. Um, and so, so that was our job was to, to to collect intelligence. So I had a group of about 20 20 uh, men and women. So as as a leader there, you know, it's really interesting because they're all looking towards me. And I was more experienced than them, but one of the things that I found very, I, I found uh, to be pretty compelling, and, and that led to our success, is I was okay when I recognized some of them were better than me, when mm. some of them had talents that I didn't have. And so, one of the one of the leadership lessons that I love talking about is, you know, you know, you, and again, this goes back to have some, to some humility. But the organization is going to rise based on the people who, who who are working for you, not based on your skills. You know, I was good, but I'm not, but but boy, the sum of our parts is, is so much better. And so, so I would sit around and I, I would love sitting around, you know, we, had a, we called it caveman TV. It's a fire pit in Afghanistan. So we sat around the fire <laughs> pit 6,000 miles away from America, you know, every night. And maybe we smuggled in some, some adult beverages, yeah. uh, even though we're not suppo- we're supposed to, but that's how I got to know my team. And here's, here's why, where it's important. I would say, I would, you know, especially in the intelligence business where, where it's a people business. And so it would be the same thing with sales, probably the same thing that somebody, what you did in the past. All of my, all of my team members had really interesting backgrounds and different strengths, but it only, it took me getting to know them around that fire pit yeah. to then realize what an incredibly diverse cast we have. And this is why it matters in operations. Let's say there's a target. That's a, that's, that's, a, that's an individual who we want to recruit. There's a there's an Afghan or a Pakistani or foreigner who has information that the United States needs. Well, I have 20 people under my command. Now we're gonna do a targeting study on this individual and we're gonna learn that he or she loves English premier soccer. Or let's go, you're you're in you're in Spain right now. Yeah, you know, no, they 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 love the football club Barcelona. I guess I guess Messi left. I
0: know, you know. just left. That's crazy. Okay. He's going so, to Paris so, now.
1: He's going to PSG. That's right. Yeah. To Paris. And so so ultimately we know this this target loves soccer well i sat around the fire pit for you know every day for several weeks and i find out one of my officers you know she played college soccer well wait a second now so we're trying to get to this individual i have all of a sudden i have someone with incredibly and 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 she played college soccer we know this 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 target is a fanatic who who, which officer am i going to put to try to recruit this individual same thing if it was in sales same thing in any any industry where it's a kind of a a person-to-person contact so that's why, you know, getting to know this kind of diverse, um, you know, group you have on your command who have really different skills, uh, uh, you know, strengths and skill sets is, is so important. And again, I, I I can talk a big game. Look at me. You, you, you can probably see. I could probably go talk to that that individual about soccer because I watch it on ESPN. But how about getting my officer who played college soccer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so that's where that's where I think this all comes in.
0: I have done the nerd version of caveman fire pit tv okay. yeah. <laughs> i think <laughs> but it's absolutely you're so right but as i'm as i'm hearing your story i think of many many memories and moments across my career where we did the equivalent of that where we yep. were in um and it's almost always when you're in an environment that's unusual. We're having a unique experience together. You're outside of your habits or routines and you get to know your teammates in a different way. You're talking about something that's never come up before or you're in a moment of crisis. I actually think it's interesting because I I call my Google teammates, my foxhole friends. I mean, you quite literally have foxhole friends, but the reason we we call each other that is these are the people that I've been with in war rooms. (laughs) Again, a military term that guards have appropriated. Uh, not a real war room, but our war rooms are when we're in code red, where we've got some kind of security vulnerability. Gosh, I'm realizing how many, how much of our terminology is like wartime Same. based. Right. <laughs> that's so funny, but where we've been up all night to solve a problem that's really important to our users and who is the person you want next to you at three 30 in the morning to really get right. the right results done. And if you haven't invested in those cultivated those relationships in advance you miss those opportunities to solve these problems in creative ways. Right. So one of the biggest mistakes I made early in my career was not prioritizing that that right. caveman fire pit moment where you're just bonding over some kind of shared experience at the end of the day, <clears throat> and I call it um, developing your friendship currency. Not that it necessarily right. needs to be transactional, but that's who's really going to come and show up for you when you're in a moment of crisis, which you quite I, literally. I,
1: I agree 1000%. And you know, mm-hmm. one of the principles in my book, I call like it, it called family values, everything's got to be catchy, you know, when you write a book. So mm-hmm. I call it family values. But but and, and I use this term, and I use it. Uh, uh, what I'm going to say now, I actually do believe so you have to have a sense of kind of love together. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you're really not going to like all the people you work with, that's okay. But, but when it comes to, to a time of crisis, you do have to have that sense of camaraderie. And I remember times where I had to make decisions under pressure, the whole premise of my book is, is at the end of my career, I was really good at at, at, at leading when there was a lack of situational awareness, where there mm. were times of ambiguity, you know, I loved the gray, I, I, you know, so, so I wanted to be the one to be in that situation where everyone wanted to flee and I was good at it. But one of the, and, and, and as I dissected, you know, as I wrote the book, as I dissected why this, was, why this was the case, the family values principle came in, because if you if you build that team where you have that trust and camaraderie, you're gonna rely on them. So I, I, you know, I remember being, being, you know, given really different, you know, problem sets as a perfect way of saying it. So whatever kind of operation we'd have to run um, looked impossible, but I would be like, "We're good, we got this," because I knew the team was so tight. You know, I had mentored all of them; they had learned together. Um, you know, I knew their skill sets. And so when you go to battle with them and you can use that in the corporate world as well if there's a crisis again what you're talking about you know with Google there's a security issue you have to do some kind of patch there's probably yeah. billion dollars at stake. Yep. You know the people you know you, you look to the left and to look to the right of you and sometimes when you say I got a great team here we're going to do this that's an amazing feeling. Um, now, sometimes you don't do that. yeah, and then you realize, boy, I, I wish I had done that or or we have some work to do in the future. Um, mm-hmm. but I really believe you can build those teams which have those family values, which is not a, is any that's not, not a moral statement. It's just a yeah. it's this kind of tight camaraderie um, where you can you know, you can walk into fire with people and and really you know be able to rely on them.
0: Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry i also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity ceos chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how i am now going to do the same for you While these stories are fun and fascinating what i hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work-life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. I have a two part question that came to mind as you were describing that. So your book has nine key leadership principles that you've, you've um, pulled out from your career. I'm curious, one, I'd love to hear more about them because we've just scratched the surface on two or three of them. And second, how much of that did you learn through formal people management training and operations training and how much of that, what percentage of that was actually just on the job in those gray zones? Like, you had to learn it in order to survive or motivate or 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 be successful in your mission.
1: I think I would say you know and I, and I, and I, and I mean this seriously it was 100% of what I learned just from the streets of the third world but with a, with a component of I had really good unofficial mentors along the way. So mm-hmm. CIA does not do it. interestingly enough I'll get in trouble saying this they don't do very good leadership training. I mean I think a lot of companies probably have that same kind of problem yeah. because we're so busy. You know since 9/11 we've been running you know 1000 miles an hour. And so, so we are not very good at leadership training. The military is, you know. So, so if you if you rise to the level of colonel in the U.S. military, have a twenty-year career, you've probably taken two one-year stints going to do some leadership schools somewhere in the United States, um, National Defense University, or you know, or something in, in the sense mm-hmm. of of you know spending a year thinking and, and learning about leadership. CIA doesn't do that. So I learned everything from firsthand, you know, on the ground uh, experience. But the key thing is I did have some mentors who really kind of helped me along the way and. And and you and know I, 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 I'll tell you about one of them. His name was Charlie. He, he's, he's, he's highlighted in the book. His real name was of course Charlie Seidel. He's passed away now, but I'll tell you why Charlie was was important. So he was probably the, the one of the greatest Arabists. This is an, an expert in the Arab world. Spoke fluent Arabic. Um, that 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 the CIA has ever ever produced. So he was a legend. Um, but here's what he did for me. And this goes back to the family values piece. And again, it's a, it's a perfect vignette. We were in Iraq together. So we, I went in, you know, we went in with Naval Special Warfare for the invasion. Um, we're rounding up some of the, you know, high value targets and the Iraqi regime officials. I spent, you know, about five and a half months there at one time. This is getting gross. I, didn't, I remember we didn't shower for six weeks. So it was nasty. It was dirty. We had a really tight team. But I left there with some pretty severe PTSD from what I saw and some of the things that 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 you know, that we did. So Charlie, who was my boss, we're back in the United States. And he calls me up one time, he knew I wasn't doing so well. My wife was really concerned. I was having these terrible nightmares. And he said, and and later on, I realized he did this. He said, hey, we're going to get the whole team back together. He had a house, he had a cottage in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So the whole original Iraq team of about 15 of us then went for two weeks and he rented house, he set the whole thing up. Now he did this because he knew I was hurting so bad. And so I'll get emotional talking about it. You know, he's passed away now, I'm still very close to his, his family. But but he's so he set this whole kind of scenario up where we spent two weeks together with families. And and that was something that that you know really helped me tremendously. Um, so you know, and so so if that's the kind of mentor that I had. And that's the kind of officer as a leader that I tried to be for others um, as I got more senior as well. So that goes back to that kind of family values of statement of, of building these teams. And look, see, I didn't have a normal job. This is not a nine to five job no. um, at all. And so, you know, you recognize that um, it's pretty unusual, but there's still some things that that, you know, you can do as, as, a, as a manager, as a leader to really help. And that was I love that story. And, you know, I'll be forever be grateful you know for him because you know, I was I was hurting and he recognized that and he took some steps to, to make me better.
0: Did that mentorship relationship come um, based on some proactive steps that you took to seek him out, or did he identify uh, a unique talent in you and really he was the one who who proactively cultivated? It? Or I imagine it was a little bit a combination of both.
1: It was, it was a combination of both, and and so and here and here is you know again I worked for him in several you know CIA stations. These are CIA offices you know overseas, and and, and I think you know he you recognized something that that I had in terms of talent. Um, but he also, but he actually did this for others as well. I mean, he just had this incredible warm heart. Now I excelled, um, you know, based on a lot of things. Again, volunteering, luck, um, uh, but you know, always, always kind of being in the moment. Uh, but I think it's it, it was it was a combination of, of of two things. But he really believed in that process of, of mentorship. I you know I write a weekly column back in the United States, you know, back back here in in the U.S. Uh, uh, for, for the Washington Examiner on intelligence. And I wrote an article about him called The Last Great American Arabist. And in that I talked about, there's probably, this is someone who has affected the career of probably the entire cadre of of CIA's Middle East operations officers because of his mentorship. So again, and and, and let me go back to my book. One of the principles again was called be a people developer. That's what he was all about. So at the end of the day, and Charlie had, just like I do in my basement, I have a I have a whole bunch of fancy medals. I mean, I'm sure you know we're gonna maybe we'll talk about it or not. I don't want to. You know all these you know these great heroic things that that I've done. I can't talk about it anyhow. But but you go in my basement. There's stuff all over the wall from all over the world. There's all these fancy medals. I was one of the CIA's most de- decorated operations officers. Nobody cares right now. What matters is that I I I mentored a whole bunch of officers who are now in senior places and they remember me as a great leader. Not that Mark ran this operation. So. Your legacy is going to be how you develop people. Charlie's legacy is how he developed me. My legacy is going to be how I developed others. And, you know, I did a book signing, um, you know, a, a, a month or two ago. It was actually, I think it was that the, when my book came out on June 8th. And, and one of the officers who I mentored a long time ago came and he said to my son, he took him aside, he said, Mark was the greatest leader that that I ever had. And and right. And I, I mean, I wish I, I knew about that at the time, but wow. that's all that matters. You know, I passed the torch. You know, all that fancy stuff downstairs in my basement, all the New York Times or Washington Post covers. I'll go down there with a nice glass of bourbon and think, wow, I was the greatest. But no one cares. (laughs) What matters is how I developed others. And and that's what I'm really proud of. And that's what Charlie did for me.
0: Mark, I think that's such a beautiful highlight of, of what you shared earlier about humility being a core part of true leadership. Um, it really is about the people. You remind me of the famous Maya Angelou quote where she says, um, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And clearly your team remembers and respects you because you prepared them, you invested in them and you made them feel seen, seen, valued, invested in, prepared for life-threatening situations. You never forget someone like that in your life. And I'm sure that there are so many moments that you cannot share, but I am curious, I I really am curious about your book writing experience and how you, how you, did you translate these experiences into A book that would be applicable to multiple different types of lives and growth stages and career aspirations. What was that process like because you you actually have mentioned these, I wasn't expecting this several nuggets of writing experience that probably helped you be prepared for this moment from being an analyst to writing those reports to doing the weekly column. So it sounds like writing has been part of your processing and your learning experience for a long time. So was that something that you feel like a message you've been crafting all along? Or was this something you sat down with truly a blank slate and thought, right, how do I translate these best practices for those not in the CIA?
1: Sure, sure. No, it, it's it's a, it's a great question because you know writing a book is such a such a you know a journey. It's an amazing experience, you know, as you know. Um, and so I think that I, I I knew I was a good writer. So again, I was trained as an analyst by the CIA. It was it was it, you know, and, and they train you really to be, be very concise, um, uh, you know, and and have a you know, certain methodology in in how you write. Um, and so it, you know, while I'm long winded in my chats, as you can <laughs> say verbally, I'm not as much when I'm when I'm writing. Um, and then, and then, when I was an operations officer, you know, the old adage was, you know, if, if it, it, you know, it didn't happen if you didn't put it on a, on, a, on a cable, if you didn't write it down and send it in. So you had mm-hmm. to be a good writer, especially when you're writing about people's motivations. You know, the assets that we recruit, what are their motivations um, to you know to spy for the United States? So you had to be had to do that. But ultimately, I think you know. At, at the end of my career, I, I wanted to to do something a little different. I didn't want to write an autobiography. And and while the book does have a lot about me and growing up and all these great, I, I tell great stories. There's about a lot of great war stories. But 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 I but when I when I left, I was just known in the agency as a really good leader. And so I wanted to kind of pass that on because I did start thinking about um, you know for my you know next part of my life is is you know what can I do? And I loved I, I, at the end of my career, I loved the mentorship and the, and the leadership part of it. And so. The most fun part about my life as a CIA officer was when I was a street case officer early in my career. So I'm on the streets of Cairo, Damascus, Amman, Kuwait, Baghdad, um, Kandahar, Kabul, et cetera, Um, spotting, assessing, developing, recruiting, handling agents. And so that's the most fun. Then you get promoted. And -hmm. by the end of my career where I was, I was frankly in charge of CIA's clandestine operations in, in all of Europe and Eurasia. I had thousands of people under my command. It was completely unfun. I did people and I, I did people issues so personnel issues I did resources I did budgets I had a really kind of gonna kind of, you know fun you know exciting title which did not translate at all no. um, uh and but so what I did at, at the end of my career was okay I'm gonna go back to that mentorship part that I love so I would meet every new officer that came into CIA who was going into you know into the europe and eurasia you know uh, uh area of operations I had a similar job over overseeing the Middle east so that's what i love the mentorship aspect aspect mm. so I was like, all right, so I'm am a pretty good writer. I love this leadership part. I'm going to start writing this book. And the amazing thing for me, um, and and the way I crafted it uh, because I didn't know what I was doing, is is I said I'm going to give myself one or two hours every morning to write, um, and 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 that's what I did over. And I and I, I didn't find it as arduous or as difficult as I as I thought I would. I, I it actually came quite easily. Um, there were certainly I had my editors at, at Harper Collins who were tremendously helpful because I really you know. You know what kind of am i writing in the third person you know what am i yeah. doing and, and how you how you write the, the stories and, and the vignettes there's obviously you know a way to do this but i didn't find it as difficult as i as i thought i would um and i think that's where i am now and kind of in my life and my kind of second career is i love the writing aspect of mm-hmm. things and so you know and so you know maybe there's a a second book in me or not but i do a lot of writing you know and you know it's certainly in the in, in the press and the media um i've been lucky to have some you know washington post you know, op-eds, you know, published. And so, uh, uh, the, the writing part of it is something that, that it's just, it's, it's just come to me. And I, 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 and I by, by the way, this is all nonfiction. This is, you know, so I write about current events. If I mean, I think writing a fiction book might be a little more difficult, but maybe I'll tackle that. Right. One day. That um, interesting. I think that's interesting. That's a whole different bear.
0: Yeah. There's a couple of gems in, in what you just shared that I really want to call out. Yeah. Um, I really love, I think, I think it's so interesting. And I think a lot of people are surprised in their careers as you advance and you become often that involves people management. It sounds fancier, but it can pull you away from what the passions that made you successful in the first place. And I just want to pull out that gem of you recognizing what was missing, that, that motivation, that thing that pulled you forward. Um, and you've sought that out. How can I mentor these these new agents? How can I pass on this wisdom? How can I have that real connection with them? And knowing that that was such a big value add for you and to proactively seek out opportunities to reinsert that into your day, I just think is such gotcha. a gem that I wanted to highlight. Sure. But you. I also, I love the way in which, so you've ended your 26-year career with the CIA. You've um, what was the process like of deciding to write the book? Had that been a goal of yours for a while? Did someone come to you and and um, persuade you to write it? And sure. um, I'd love to hear perhaps as we, gosh, our, the time has flown. Oh, it hurts me. Okay. I wonder as we wrap up our conversation, is there maybe a story you would like to highlight that really emphasizes something that you hope people take away from the book, like a core message or a, a core um, translatable skill that you hope people pull out and and take away as a summary.
1: Sure. So, so in terms of, of, uh, you know, why did I write the book? I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic question because, you know, I lived in the shadows for 26 years. There's, there's, there's probably half a dozen of us, maybe, maybe a dozen former CIA officers at, you know, different ranks of seniority who do talk in the media. But when I, when I was leaving, I went to, you know, a a friend of mine who is the former acting director, Mike Morrell, um, acting director of the CIA. And, you know, and, and I said, I said, look, and, and this was, and I don't want to get too political, you know, uh, on this, but it was at a time where the intelligence community was being attacked by the administration, frankly. And so, the, you know, the idea of the deep state and all these things, which I find, you know, kind of nonsensical, yeah. but that's what was happening. And, and I said, look, I think that, that you know, it, I, I could I could be a good voice for the men and women of the CIA and the intelligence community by just being able to explain what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're normal people. I mean, I was a middle-class kid from New Jersey, you know, who had, to, you, know, uh, you know, crazy mom and dad who put me in an airplane when I was 10 years old. <laughs> For North Africa, but but it, but in essence, you know, you know, you, you, you mean if you saw, you know, I, you know, and again, I know you're you're in Europe, but I'm talking about it's what's a it, giant or Safeway or Publix or a supermarket in, in in the United States. There's people, you know, who look just like me or anyone else who work at the CIA. So we're not superhuman. But I wanted <laughs> to be able to explain what CIA was like to the American people because it's an organization that's so misunderstood. Um, and and the fact of the matter is, you know, since you know since 9 11, we've been helping protect. know to keep america to keep americans safe and they can you know they can sleep well at night and so so i wanted to just tell that story and by doing that that means going into the media that means writing um and and mike morell really really uh uh, encouraged me to do that so that's why i took that jump i mean i you know and it's a little unusual and you know some of my former colleagues were not happy about it um uh, because it just kind of goes against the grain of what we do but I have a secrecy agreement with the with the CIA that I still, of course, have to adhere to. Everything I talk about and say, everything is cleared by the Publications Review Board. Yeah. I'm very careful on that. Um, but I wanted to tell the American people what I you know about an institution that I think is indispensable. So you know that is uh, you know that is something that is that is really important to me in terms of of stories. Wow, I have so many kind of great you know you know you know uh, operational and war stories in the book. But but I think you know here's one, and I think it, it goes exactly you know what I'm talking about now. Um, why I wanted to explain, why I wanted to talk about the CIA to the American people. And so I go back to the whole premise of what I did as an operations officer. So my job was to, to you know, to handle and recruit agents. And these are these are foreigners who we recruit to provide information to the United States. Sometimes they do it out of, out of you know, very, you know, altruistic motivations. You know, maybe they, they love the American way of life, the system, democracy. Some Maybe they need money. You know, sometimes it's just a financial need. Maybe they have a sick kid that we can provide health care for. But there's a motivation that causes them. You know, I always called it a, It's a. It's a, my job was was. You know, I was in a psych five hundred one, not a psych one hundred one class, because of that <laughs> human element. But here's the story. I know I'm getting long winded here. Here's the story. So I'm in Europe one time, and I'm training an agent, and he's a member. You know, he's a, he's a foreigner. He's a member of another country's diplomatic service who we recruited, and we're going back into a country which is a really kind of bad place. It's an autocratic country, um, certainly not friends of the United States. And so we're sitting there, and we're, we're tra- I'm training him on on how to evade surveillance and some communication techniques and he says to me mark he says look i know that you know we're going to spend two years together and i'm thinking to myself you know i hope he makes it the two years but he he did <laughs> um, uh, and that cuz that's the stakes in this in this country where we're where we're running him and he said but and, and we're going to meet maybe once a month once every 3 weeks with these really effective really special tradecraft techniques to keep him safe um and he said so you're going to think of me every now and then but let me tell you something i'm going to think of you every single day you know, I, I, he goes, I know you're going to be watching, you know, American football in the middle of the night on Armed Forces Network, you know, AFN. Um, you know, you have other things to do. You have your family with you. But I'm going to think of you every single day, because if you make one mistake, you know, I'm going to die and my whole family is going to die. So just keep that in mind. And I was stunned by that, that level of amount of responsibility. Um, and, and I was I was, a, I was you know, I was, a, I was a manager, but a junior manager at the time. And so so I did two things with that. One is it certainly motivated me to be better. But it also gave me a story to tell to my junior officers because i was a first-line manager i had people you know, i had four or five people directly under me and i'm like okay everyone this these are the stakes you know so we you know we cannot make a mistake because people's lives are you know are are, are, are at riskier and so i i love that story and it was a really good motivator to others um just to, to you know so we could have our game faces on and and look we're human so you're going to make some mistakes but. But you know, this was this really this is really high stakes a uh, high stakes business, and so uh, uh, I love that story. And and the good news is this this individual ended up working for us for a long time, and then he made it out of his country and he's safely ensconced you know somewhere else with his family. And so, uh-huh. but I, I love that story because it talks about the nature of what we did, but also about how as I was able to pass it on to my junior officers just to talk about you know because every once in a while there's stuff you do that you, you know you got to be this hey this one no mistakes on this you got to have your game face on.
0: Wow, Mark, what an incredible career and responsibility that you've had. A burden that you, I'm sure, still carry and feel on your shoulders today. These these people, these experiences, some very failures in the realist sense, I'm sure, is something heavy. But thank you so much for not only your service to our country, but also to passing these lessons forward and inspiring the next generation of leaders to be so value-driven, to be humble, to remember their teams and, and the people that we're serving and to to make sure that that's always at the center of, of what we're contributing to this world. My favorite last question to ask is, what excites you about the future? Obviously your book and, and getting this out into the world is something exciting, but what do you think is next for you? What, what makes you jump out of bed in the morning?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, so, I mean, certainly a couple, well, hopefully with the, well, I was gonna say with the pandemic ending, but I'm not sure it is. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. but but so what what exc- what it really excites me is the ability not only to tell the story you know here in the united states but to go over to, to, to go overseas and do it as well because these are these are you know leadership principles that certainly um apply you know across the globe and so just before the pandemic hit you know i i made it to greece you know where i was born and i gave a whole bunch of speeches on leadership and it was like
0: you wow. know the,
1: the you know the sun coming home and i was you oh. know warm uh, you know welcome but i look forward to you know getting back to europe and and, and you know talking about this um and because again it does two things i've talked about the leadership principles it also puts a face on the cia that a lot of people may not uh may not uh, uh really really understand and so you know there's there's a lot to be optimistic about i have to be optimistic i think we have to get over this the, the end of the the, the, the next wave of the, of the pandemic now which has been certainly unfortunate but uh you know there, there are still mornings i get up just like just like i did in the cia there's morning i i get up a little kick in my step and so uh i'm ready for that that next phase of my life for sure
0: Oh, that's really inspiring for me to hear, because I have a feeling you know a few things about the world that the rest of us don't have access to, and if you're feeling very optimistic about the future, I feel like I have even more permission to do that as well. And post-pandemic, you're very welcome here in Spain. I would love to host you oh, for some book talks here. That would yep. be amazing. All
1: right, we're um, how,
0: how can people follow your journey and connect with you Perfect. and learn more about the book?
1: So the book is, is uh, called Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons uh, from the CIA. It's on Amazon um uh clarityandcrisisbook.com is the book landing page um and that gives you some other places where you can order it from and i'm on i'm prolific uh, and i warn people that i'm all over the place but a <laughs> prolific twitter user um it's at at m polymer um so just like my name at m polymer and i will tweet about leadership and politics and sports i'm a baseball fanatic i love talking about dive bars um and restaurants <laughs> and so i'm all over the place i think that you know when uh, uh when i've been publicizing the book um, or, you know, my, the, the publisher Harper Collins was like, oh God, his Twitter account. <laughs> but uh, it is who I am. So it, you're going to get a whole boat, a dose of everything. And, but one of the things that is really important about that is I actually, you know, I answer, I get tons of, you know, direct messages, DMS every day. And I answer people, I mean, a lot, as long as it's not insulting. I mean, some, sometimes there's some you know, interesting <laughs> comments, but I, I definitely like, like to engage with, with people from all around the world. And I certainly do. And so I welcome that kind of that back and forth, cause that's what makes this really special.
0: I love that. I will definitely be following you and I can't wait to stay connected and um, devour my copy of your book. All right. Mark, thank you so, so much for all of this wisdom you've shared, for your service and for continuing to contribute so much to our world. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Thanks for having me. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank you.